This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to the final episode of The Thing from Another Medium, the podcast that's been about cross-gender adaptations. I'm Adam. I'm a non-binary literature nerd who loves movies. And I'm Maeve. I'm a trans femme film dork who will hopefully never read a book again. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about American Psycho, the book by Brett Easton Ellis that was turned into a movie by Mary Harron and Guinevere Turner. Because Brett Easton Ellis is a man and Guinevere Turner and Mary Harron are women, that makes this movie a cross-gender adaptation. And so we're here to talk about the book, the movie, and everything in between. And the first thing I'm going to say is that this is easily the largest gulf in quality we've covered on this show. Because, like, the book was just absolutely fucking awful. I... I'm kind of going to give that award to Frankenstein, to be honest, because, like, one of the most influential books of the past 200 years, no, no, it's been more than 200 years, call it an even 300, versus Mary Shelley's Frankenstein by Kenneth Branagh, you know. Like, I'm not, like, I definitely see where you're coming from, but also that is such a gap in, like, how these things are approached, and you can argue the same for American Psycho, but a lot of what was different between the two Frankensteins we talked about was aesthetic as well. And I think aesthetically between the book and the film, it's basically the same. Whereas it was a much wider gap in the Frankensteins. Yeah, I do see what you're saying in that case. They're very different cases of adaptation. And I'm really happy that we can discuss both on this show. All right. So, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, scumbag. I hate him. Uh, yeah. It, did he write a book called Generation Wuss, or did he just write a book wherein he referred to millennials as Generation Wuss? I don't care to look it up. I don't know. I don't want to know. I wouldn't be shocked if it was like a fucking L.A. Times a thing he wrote. Uh, excuse the burp. We both broke out the bubbly to celebrate. Yes, quite so. And in the book... Patrick Bateman, the narrator and central character, he describes everyone's dress in enormous detail down to what brand every single item of clothing they're wearing is and what they're drinking and all those brands. Because ultimately, any way you slice it, American Psycho is about consumer capitalism. So I don't know. What are you wearing now and who made it? What's the fashion designer? I am wearing a Yale University t-shirt that my mom got for me a couple years ago when she consulted uh, for Yale. A pair of blue jeans, pretty sure they're Levi's. Uh, some Nike socks, glasses, don't know the brand, but they're good glasses. Uh, I'm wearing Periella slacks, I'm not wearing shoes. My shirt I got at an Army-Navy store, who even knows? We're really getting in the spirit of things. The novel American Psycho was written in 1991, like just after the 80s at the dawn of the 90s. And it's very much an act of reflection, of looking back at the decade that's just ended and saying like, 
Oh, man, what were we doing? That's the same question I can ask Brett Easton Ellis for why the prose is so absolutely fucking insufferable. Like, I say I hated the book, and, like, this was a book that had a lot of backlash upon release because of the violence that was described, because it was a book about a fucking, you know, asshole serial killer who preyed on women and didn't outwardly... Like, it didn't have, like, a Hays Code-type ending, and there was a lot of criticism towards the book by huge feminist thinkers, and, like, Gloria Steinem was famously against the book, and it kind of makes it hilarious that Christian Bale, Gloria Steinem's uh, stepson, starred in the film. Oh, yes, I had forgotten about that connection. It's a small world, and by that I mean it's a nepotistic world. I really like the detail that the book leaves a tiny bit ambiguous that the movie really drills in on, which is that Patrick Bateman's father owns the company he works at, and that's how he manages to get away with not doing any work at all. Yeah, but like even in the film it's kinda of, it's like mentioned, but it's still kinda of glossed over because it is so much like it is so in his brain. Through, through the whole thing however in the film because in film because it's a visual medium it's a lot more tolerable be, in part because i'm not constantly in his brain as he's thinking as i put my armani jacket on to this vintage coat rack that i got from sotheby's i turned on the tv to find jeopardy as i sat down and read the may 1990 issue of sports illustrated with greg maddox on the cover Greg Maddox is the F word. <laughs> he wouldn't be reading the Greg Maddox issue. He'd be reading the swimsuit issue. Let's be clear here. True, but like, at the same time, like, just reading that for so long, like, I cracked open the book thinking, okay, this is a guy who I already kind of have a low opinion of because of his terrible op-eds and that he just seems to be gen like a general piece of garbage. But who knows? This is like a very influential book. Maybe I'll get something out of it. And what I got out of it is that I want to put Brett Easton Ellis on trial. What I got out of it is I wanted it to be maybe 60 pages long, Max. It really succeeds at getting you into this horrible, horrible person's headspace. And then it keeps you there for about half the book before anything actually happens. Yeah, and that's also something the film does differently because of the translation to it being a visual medium. Like, it shows Bateman's love of bloodlust, his bloodlust, his willingness to do murders a lot more quickly than the book does. The book keeps it ambiguous for as long as it can. But at the same time, I think titling the book American Psycho is already a bit of a tipping of the book's hand. It's such a simple, you could almost say populist kind of title. Like, I am not a fan of appending the word American to titles because it's so overdone at this point. Like, Neil Gaiman, American Gods, that gets to stay. Most of the other ones, yeah, you're out. Uh, so are you anti-Philip Roth here? Uh, let's not talk about Philip Roth. Let's not unpack that on this podcast where we already have to unpack Brett Easton Ellis. True. 
But yeah, I had like sort of like an immediate repulsive, I hate this reaction to the book that comes along for me like every once in a while for any form of media. I just like started and immediately felt like deep feelings of hatred for almost primal in how I just did not want to be reading the book. I think that's definitely intentional on some level. Like Ellis, he he's described in interviews how like this was this bad headspace he was in writing the book helped him get out of it along those lines. Like the, he was, I don't want to call him a victim of the eighties, but he was someone who got swept up in the eighties to a huge extent. Before he wrote American Psycho, like, was Less Than Zero before it? Yeah, Less Than Zero and Rules of Attraction were both before American Psycho. I'm sure those books had their own controversy. I haven't really felt the need to look into it. But American Psycho seems like where Brett Easton Ellis went from kind of like just general acclaimed guy to being, quote, a firebrand. Like, this is in many ways the thing that defined his career. You, you ask, like, some guy if they know who Brett Easton Ellis is, and if the answer is yes, they're probably going to say, oh yeah, American Psycho. Yeah, that is true. And the themes and subject matter, none of it was absent from his earlier work, but this is the one that broke out just as a book, even before it was adapted into a movie. Yeah, and a lot of that is because of the controversial elements. The Like, it really only gets there... Like, or at least it amps up considerably in the back half, which includes an entire chapter of Bateman talking about trying to cook and eat a human being he had murdered. And the thing is, you have that entire chapter, and you also have an entire chapter about the discography of Huey Lewis in the news. And Genesis, and Whitney Houston... Yeah, it's very intentional, it's very satirical, but the satire is played so far to the hilt, it's so immersed in the satire, it never like winks at the audience or takes you out of the headspace, really, that if you're not reading it critically or closely, it's easy to just think, oh, this is good and cool, and I should like this guy. Like, that's the thing that comes across considerably better in the film to me because, you know, film is visual. And without having to read all this, ah, yes, I put the Huey Lewis and the News CD on my stereo as I sat down to put on my facial cleanser and just bask in the genius of Huey Lewis on my $2,000 couch. Yeah, Mary Harron, the director of the movie who had a major hand in adapting the book to the, to the screen since Guinevere Turner, the screenwriter, co-wrote it with her. She's talked a lot about in interviews how much she focused on the dark humor. To me, it's unavoidable that a film adaptation of this work that preserved the prose, which the script largely does, would be funny because if you make an actual human read these words out loud and you have to look at him while he's doing that, it's going to be funny to watch. And I think casting Christian Bale, who's a choice that she really had to fight for. At one point she was fired from the movie because DiCaprio wanted to play the part. 
and she eventually got back on after he dropped out. I think casting Bale was a really good decision because quite aside from anything else, he is a Brit child actor. And so his New York accent is largely pretty good, but he's really putting a bit too much English on the ball, if you'll pardon the metaphor. And he just adds a little bit of over-enunciation to every single line he says, and it serves excellently to hammer home that this is a guy putting on a performance. This is a guy who doesn't really think this, and he's just acting this way to fit into society because in real life, he is a man with mental issues who lives in the United States. I wonder if there's a pithier way of saying that. And you mentioned this movie's development cycle, which was very interesting. Like, the rights were first optioned in 1992 with Johnny Depp in mind to play Patrick Bateman. This was 90s Depp, you know, back when people still thought of him as like a really good, interesting actor. He was fresh off Crybaby and Edward Scissorhands, right? You can see that choice. Yep. And... In 92, David Cronenberg came on to direct, and he hired Brett Easton Ellis to write a script and told Ellis to not include any of the restaurant or nightclub material from the book. Which is about a third of the book, to be clear. Yeah, and it resulted in Ellis kind of becoming a bit disheartened and like half-assing a draft that apparently ended with a big musical sequence on the World Trade Center. Oh, that's curious. And given the movie came out in 2000 it makes you wonder if that script got made what kind of standing it would have in culture these days yeah like part of it is because it's Cronenberg who only made a film that hit the mainstream every once in a while but at the same time Cronenberg did not like the script that was the only pass Freddie Snells did he hired a different writer and when Cronenberg stepped off Mary Heron stepped on this was right after her directorial debut, which was called I Shot Andy Warhol, a movie I once checked out from my college library but then forgot to watch before I had to turn it back in. Oh, well. I've been to the Warhol Museum multiple times. They, I wouldn't say they dwell on Valerie Solanas and the scum, the Society for Cutting Up Men, but, you know, they definitely have to have it in there. Yeah, like, I was really interested in watching the movie, and then I just couldn't watch it for whatever reason, probably pandemic. And let's do a watch party of it, Maeve, you and me. Yeah, sure. We could we could probably find it somewhere. Yeah, we'll figure it out. But yeah, Mary Heron uh, brought on Christian Bale. But at the time, Lionsgate thought that maybe they could make it a prestige picture. And they were like demanding a more current pretty boy type actor and after Titanic just completely exploded and became the most popular movie in the world, they desperately wanted DiCaprio, and Heron refused to cast DiCaprio because she had already settled on Bale and wanted Bale. And then they fired her, replaced her with Oliver Stone because he agreed to cast DiCaprio. Oliver Stone, by the way, we dodged a fucking bullet. Yeah, you want to talk about movies that might have had a very different place in culture and involve the World Trade Center. Cough, cough. <laughs> Seriously. Like, Oliver Stone doing Brett Easton Ellis sounds like an abject 
fucking nightmare. And I'm so glad that the movie goddesses uh, made that not happen. In part because the budget ballooned when they signed on DiCaprio because DiCaprio's figure at the time was like 20 million. And the script just kept getting rewritten and rewritten and no one liked it. And eventually uh, DiCaprio dropped out to do Danny Boyle's The Beach and Stone dropped off the project to, I don't know, jerk off to Russia or something, which resulted in Mary Heron and Christian Bale being pulled back onto the project with a $7 million budget, which resulted in the movie that got made. You say a $7 million budget. I was actually a little surprised because it's so sumptuous. All the location photography is so good. All the costuming and the the haute cuisine, that's so on point. They do a really good job of making this world full of vapid rich people seem appropriately fancy enough. I have to imagine that a big part of keeping the budget that low was a very short schedule. Because you look at the ensemble cast in the movie, and it's not just Christian Bale and a bunch of nobodies. It's a bunch of people who were names, who were popular at the time and after. Like... The supporting cast includes Josh Lucas, Justin Thoreau, Willem Dafoe, and the movie's biggest casting coup, probably, Reese Witherspoon. Ironically, you could probably get away with making a movie full of unknowns with one movie star, since the whole point of the movie is this like, complete lack of empathy or compassion for anyone, where the narration treats everyone else as so vapid, so empty, that, like they barely register and everyone's confusing everyone for everyone else all the time. No one's sure who's who because everyone is conforming and getting actual, not just name actors, even on a lower level like Thoreau and cough, cough, Jared Leto, but good actors who really make an impression. It really helps you keep track of what's going on in a way that the people in the story can't. Yeah, and, like, of course, like, Bale and Defoe are billed first because they were the two biggest names at the time, aside from Witherspoon, who gets the and uh, credit. But the supporting cast is just full of people who you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that person in, like, five things. I've seen that person in ten things. And it's part of what makes it feel like a big, bigger project than it ultimately is. Like, I mentioned the scheduling, but also the movie only shot, like, a few exteriors in New York and mostly shot in Toronto, in part because Mary Heron is herself Canadian, but also Toronto has has historically been cheaper for Hollywood productions to shoot in than actual New York City. Yeah, and you can tell the streets are too wide for Wall Street, but it still creates a very good vibe. Yeah, Toronto is a beautiful city. I would love to go there someday. And uh, I'd love to have you back in New York, too. I'm a New Yorker myself. I do not work on Wall Street and have not spent much time there in my life because there's no reason for me to be down there if I'm not, like, taking the Staten Island Ferry someplace. But, you know. When I was in New York, this was a few years ago, me and Adam actually uh, met at a Mets game. Patrick Bateman is a Mets fan in the book. That gets jettisoned in the movie. That's something I really took notice of. It's obviously just like this dumb, tiny detail, but like I think this speaks to why the book was so popular, because it had so much you could hang on to. 
because of all the like endless detail. But also, I thought for sure uh, Bateman would be a Yankees guy because he's a fucking rich asshole. I think that's partially intentional because at the same time, he's like such old money. His family has been in New York for so long. Yeah, he could conceivably be a Mets fan from back when the Mets were like the cool new young team. Possibly. Just like one more thing I want to say about the book before we go full bore into the movie. There's a Norman Mailer quote on the back of the book praising it, and that quote is better written than the entirety of the book. <laughs> like, I have an excerpt from Mailer's a blurb on the back here. Ellis is showing older authors where the hands have come to on the clock. That is a million times better than anything uh, Ellis comes up with in the actual novel. I think if you asked him, he'd call that intentional. Like, this is kind of a dumb guy, and he speaks in the tenor of a dumb guy. And I don't mean to be mean, but that's probably part of why the book was such a success and why a lot of his other books haven't been as huge. I do see where you're coming from here, and I'll leave it at that. So... One weird thing about the legacy of American Psycho, the movie, is that it's kind of become something of a, quote, film bro movie. It has? Yeah, when I was getting into movies, which was like late 2012, early 2013, I followed a lot of, you know, the film bro YouTube channels and that kind of thing. And it seemed like for a long time, like, they really got attached to American Psycho, but Something I noticed eventually was that whenever they talked about it and were praising it, they never talked about Mary Heron. They never talked about Guinevere Turner. All they talked about was Christian Bale. Now, I'm not going to pin this on Bale or his performance. Bale is a fine actor, and he seems like a very collaborative person with the directors he works with. He's also someone who commits... I saw this thing in an interview with Mary Harron that she did last year where, like, I said to Christian Bale, you should go to the gym because Patrick Bateman goes to the gym because he was this really skinny English kid. And two weeks later, I look at him and he's this, like, behemoth because he's been working out nonstop. That's something Bale became known for as a performer, which was committing so much he would physically change his body for almost every role. Like, famously, when he was cast as Batman... The next movie he had coming out was The Machinist, where he became dangerously underweight for the role, and then almost immediately was working out and beefing up and was an absolute beefcake for Batman Begins. And it's something he's started trying to do less. Like, every time he does a role like this, he's like, I need to stop doing this. It's not good for me, body. And then he does it again. Like, he said after American Hustle that he's probably going to stop losing weight. Then a few years later, he gains a ton of weight for Vice, playing Dick Cheney. And then he loses the weight almost instantly for Ford versus Ferrari. And I feel like if he keeps doing this, his heart's going to give out at, like, 60. Christian Bale and Tom Cruise racing each other for the grave. Yeah, though with Bale, it's due to constantly fluctuating weight. And with Tom Cruise, it's his... Weird devotion to doing his own stunts. You can just be a handsome man in the movies. That can be enough. 
but yeah, I'm very interested in a movie by Mary Heron, who is a filmmaker whose work is consistently deeply entangled in feminist themes through her own beliefs and the subject matter. Her first film was about uh, a hardcore radical feminist activist who tried to murder Andy Warhol. Uh, her, she had the film The Notorious Betty Page about a pinup model that was based on the film brief film career of her first stepmother who was who played a major role in Stanley Kubrick's first movie. The Moth Diaries is a is a supernatural a thriller horror film, but it's a movie that is also set at an all-girls school. It's based on a sort of gothic drama novel, albeit a modern one, and it's about a teenage friendships and whatnot as well as sexuality within adolescence and then her most recent film uh, which is called Charlie Says was about some was about three of Charles Manson's uh, women followers who while incarcerated came to terms with what being indoctrinated into Manson's cult had done to them and Manson was played by Matt Smith, who played the role of Patrick Bateman in the American Psycho musical when it was on the West End. Yep. Uh, our good friend Andrew Clark saw the Broadway version with Benjamin Walker and continues to bang the drum for the movie, despite it being pretty much entirely ignored. For the musical, you mean? Yep. And by the way, this is our second episode that features subject matter that was turned into a musical by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, which I think says more about him than about us. You mean that he is a gay man who loves trash and occasionally stumbles into problematic bullshit? Mm, maybe stumbles isn't the best word for it. I mean, that's probably the most generous reading because... Since we recorded the Carrie episode, which was like four months ago now, um, I learned about the finale of his Chilling Adventures of Sabrina show, and Jesus Christ, that sounds like a nightmare. I think this is a wonderful time to adjourn to your cinematography corner. Welcome to the cinematography corner. Uh, I like cinematography a lot. It is something I pay a shocking amount of attention to. And the cinematographer on American Psycho is Andrish Sekula, whose name I probably completely butchered. He is a Polish cinematographer who made his film debut on Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. He then shot Pulp Fiction, and then Tarantino abandoned him for Guillermo Navarro and, uh, of course, Robert Richardson. But he managed to iron out a pretty solid career for himself. He shot the David Mamet film Oleana. He shot uh, Hackers, one of my favorite 90s time capsules. I genuinely think that movie rules. And after American Psycho, he actually made his film debut directorial debut i mean on cube 2 
Hypercube, which I vote should replace uh, Electric Boogaloo when joking about sequel titles. More recently, he's been working in the sort of direct-to-video realm, working on two direct-to-video movies that starred Nicolas Cage and two that starred John Travolta. I don't know too much about his career, but I do want to note he started out shooting Pulp Fiction. The co-writer of Pulp Fiction, Roger Avery, he ended up adapting Brett Easton Ellis' earlier novel, The Rules of Attraction. He made that movie. And apparently, like, him and Ellis became great pals. They shot so much footage for the Rules of Attraction movie that they ended up having this whole other movie in it about one character, like, having sex with married women in Europe. And they shot that by him pretending to be the character having sex with real-life married women in Europe. And because of that, the movie can't be released. That movie is called uh, Glitterati. Yeah. And... In 2008, Roger Avari was arrested for manslaughter and DUI after joking about his uh, sentence on Twitter. He was sent to jail. Yeah, I noted that too. No wonder he and Brady Sinellis became boys. And speaking of, in the Rules of Attraction movie, which has been described to me by mutual friend. Uh, who goes by the username Arsner's Fishing Rod, described that movie to me once as pure evil, which, you know, that tracks. Definitely. But we're getting a little uh, field of your cinematography corner. Tell us about the cinematography in this movie, which I love, because the 90s were, the late 90s when this movie was made, I really love the look movies had around this time with all these deep colors and really defined, crisp images. Tell me more about that. Secula did some really solid work for the budget. It's part of why the movie looks and feels so much more expensive than it actually is. Like, everything is lit perfectly based on, like, the rule in the story. The restaurants are overlit and garish, and... Thus, it looks like, I guess, your standard uh, foofy New York restaurant that I imagine Brett Easton Ellis hated because he couldn't do coke in the bathroom. The streets and general night scenes are appropriately dark and grungy. Whenever Bateman is going full serial killer, he there are always stark contrasting colors in the murders. It pairs really well with the production design, especially during the carnage that happens in his own house or apartment, which is basically something that looks like it would cost like $3 million now, if not more. Oh, way more. Yeah, like I thought maybe $3 million would be too low, but at minimum high seven figures, I guess. Yeah, let's let's not put a number on it. Let's not hedge our bets. Yeah, because I can probably like look up penthouse apartments in New York and my jaw will drop at what something in Greenwich Village costs. But yeah, it's it was all shot on film, Super 35 if I have if IMDb's technical specs are correct. Shot in 235, arguably the best aspect ratio. 
it used standard film equipment at the time because digital was still in its infancy. Panavision cameras, Panavision lenses, 35mm film from Kodak, appears to be Super 35, anamorphic and all that. In a weird bit of trivia, the most commonly available Blu-ray of the film was released in open matte. What does that mean? If you shoot a movie on film but want it to be in a certain aspect ratio, say 235 or 185 or 166 or something, you have to sort of zero in on it in the edit, which unless you're shooting digitally, in that case, you can look on the monitor and you see it being blocked out for certain aspect ratios during on the monitor while shooting digitally on film it's different because you can't easily see everything especially at this point until it's uh, processed photochemically for dailies and it's only then where you can see what's going on and maybe change it if something got messed up so what is the open mat what is that basically an open mat is the content that was shot that fills the entire film image that it's printed on and in this case what aspect ratio is that in in this case uh 178 which fills the entirety of your standard 16 by 9 uh tv so i have not seen the film in an open mat i've only seen it in its intended ratio because that's how i prefer to watch movies i will literally not watch a movie if it isn't in the proper ratio, which I'm aware makes me a very certain kind of dork. It's it's an integrity I admire about you, Mavis. This is the last episode. I can't deny getting a tiny bit sentimental about this silly little series of ours, and I want to applaud you for that impulse. But yeah, it's a really handsomely shot movie with probably the visual highlight being the opening title sequence which looks like it's blood dropping onto a white surface. But as things continue, it's really a chef in the back of one of the many trendy restaurants who are all named things like uh, Gorsia. Dorsia. What's the one he takes the Valium addict to? Oh, okay. Yeah, that woman, he takes her to Barcadia, which is a takeoff on Arcadia, a real restaurant, Except for Dorsia, all the restaurants in the movie were like actual restaurants that were open in New York City at the time. I found this wonderfully comprehensive guide to all the restaurants they talk about, and they were all really open at the time that the movie and the book were taking place. You can find it on like NY Scouting, this website that talks about various New York locations in film that obviously I like worship. Yeah, because if you couldn't tell by this point, Adam is very much a New York boy. Well, for a given value of boy. True. You once wrote an article about the Queen's locations in Spider-Man Homecoming. Mm Mm-hmm. Very good article. Uh, Check it out. It's on loopandbust.net. It's a few years old at this point, though. And even though it's shot in Toronto, and if you know New York well enough, you can feel it, at the same time, like, it feels appropriately enough New York-y. Like, it doesn't get too specific into the New York stuff, or at least not as much as the book does. But it feels like it even after they've told you it, in part because Toronto 
is a big city, but it's fairly anonymous unless you live there. It's kind of like Vancouver in that way, where you can shoot it to double for a lot of other places. I think part of the reason it works is the alienation factor, the factor of you not being at home or recognizing anything or like feeling anything is safe or normal. I thought it was interesting. I hadn't realized the movie came out nine years after the book did in 2000. And when I was watching it, I realized this is a movie that belongs to that story genre, which is it's the turn of the millennium. And so reality is out of control, which covers a lot of great movies and like perhaps less well-remembered movies, like everything from like the matrix to being John Malkovich to dark city to existence, which is how you pronounce that. I believe to like, Fight Club, of course, which this was touted as a successor to. All these movies that, like, followed the theme of everything is breaking apart at the seams. And in the movie, they take over this thing from the book that becomes a lot more of a bigger deal in a movie because movies are usually so realist and literal, generally, where everything that happened, all these grisly murders... It raises the possibility that Patrick Bateman is a different kind of psycho and all this is in his head. Yeah, that's kind of the big crux of the ending and it's part of why for some people it felt very unsatisfying and is and is kind of an integral part of why they railed against it is that there's this big long climax where Bateman thinks he's getting caught and he phones his lawyer a and gives a very, very long uh, confession detailing his crimes in horrible ways. And then the next day, he, like, goes to an apartment to clean up some bodies, and it no one's there. No one was ever there. Except the realtor showing the place off and telling him to go, go away. And then he talks to his lawyer, and the lawyer's like, Ah, yeah, that was a good joke. Well, was no one ever there, or did the wheels of capitalism feel forced to turn on? Like, did they just, like, whitewash all the blood away and install new coats of paints so they could show the apartment off to potential renters because it wouldn't do to have a bloody body in the middle of it? True. It kind of ends very similar to how it began. Bateman and his friends, well, friends, at a chic New York hangout, a restaurant or a nightclub, and Bateman just kind of breaking. And the movie, I mean, the book ends with probably one of its most famous lines, which is not in the movie, uh, this is not an exit. It's kind of in the movie. You see that written on a sign on a door behind him, and then you zoom into his eyes for the final moment, and it gets lost. But, you know, it got in there. It also leads to, like, one adaptational change that I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, there is a character, a sex worker, played by Kara Seymour, who they gave the world's worst turf bangs for this movie. This is a new phrase to me. I did not know about turf bangs until just this moment. Yep. Turf bangs are a thing. Don't ever give yourself that haircut. But anyways, 
The sex worker, played by Cara Seymour, shows up a few times over the course of the movie. And the first scene is the famous scene like where Patrick Bateman talks about Genesis and is and is like bend over so she can see her asshole. And then he says my favorite my well my second favorite line in the whole movie, which is don't just stare at it, eat it. I admit my eyes kind of glazed over at all the lengthy explicit sex scenes in the books and I was quite happy to find that the movie really elided over most of the sexy parts to focus on the awkwardness and the dark humor. And it also did that to the violence, which, like, it's a real breath of fresh air, I gotta say. Yeah, like, the movie's filming was protested and and disrupted by a number of feminist groups, kind of ironic considering... Heron and her co-writer Guinevere Turner, who is also in the movie. Oh, is she? Uh, yeah, she's uh the woman in the scene where Cara Seymour gets murdered, and that was actually what I was leading to, which was during that final scene, which is Cara Seymour and uh, Guinevere Turner's character, and I must admit that I was crushing pretty hard on Guinevere Turner's look in the film. It is what I would love to be if I was a redhead. But anyways, during that scene, when Seymour realizes that uh, Bateman is focusing more on the Guinevere Turner character and slides out and starts getting dressed, then she hears screaming and Guinevere Turner getting murdered from under the covers. Seymour is just running, screaming. It is all from her perspective and it is horrifying. However, it's something I do feel kind of muddles slightly what Heron's going for because the film from that point was entirely from Bateman's perspective and it switches to Cara Seymour's perspective a few times when her character is involved and especially during that whole sequence. And that was intentional on Heron's part, which she thought made sure the violence wasn't completely exploitative. And it's something where I see what she was going for, and I also kind of see how, through some choices she makes in that chase, it still feels like it all could have been in Bateman's head. But at the same time, because the movie up until that point had always been from Bateman's point of view, I do think it did kind of muddle things a bit. I think we've wandered all the way over here from the cinematography corner. At this point, we officially should acknowledge we have entered the gender zone. It's the gender zone. The gender zone. Welcome to the gender zone. Uh, Cross-gender adaptation means there's a lot of gender stuff to talk about. That's what we've been doing already, but now you've heard the music. You've heard my mom. Hi, mom. And to me, a big change that the movie makes to the book is it gives a lot more of an internal life and an internal psychology to all the female characters. And that is an enormous change. And definitely a welcome one. There was this line that her secretary has, that Patrick's secretary has, literally every time she's introduced in the book uh, Patrick calls her Jean, my secretary, who's in love with me. 
But in the movie, she gets this line that's never anywhere in the book. Most of the dialogue is pretty faithful. She says, I can't help getting involved with unavailable men. And that single line does more to characterize her and give her agency than anything in the book, which just treats her as kind of a joke, even when the joke turns sour. Indeed. In fact, uh, the secretary in the movie who is played by the brilliant Chloe Sevigny, a lot of the film's emotional core, if you could call call it that, is in her character. At the end of the movie, while Bateman is suffering in the knowledge that, that whatever he may have done might have just been ignored or maybe it didn't even happen, the secretary is looking through his planner where he has just drawn all sorts of absolutely horrible shit that actually mirrors what he was doing in the movie and is actually how the film includes some of the book's worst bits of violence. Yeah, that's very true. And I think it's very powerful to do that after a movie full of so much alienation and amorality and complete lack of empathy to have this honest person who genuinely cares about Patrick as a person, even if she keeps way more distance from him than the book equivalent does because she has a head on her shoulders. It's a big change to have her look at what is inside his mind and emotionally show she cares. And I think that's such a big break from the book because you then get the ending, which is pretty faithful, where he says, like, my confession has meant nothing. On the inside, nothing matters. It's all about the outside. Very much a reflection of, like, capitalist 80s consumer culture. But ending it on that grace note of, yes, there are people who care, there are people who see, and making that a feminine quality, I think that really serves to underline all the grim satire coming up to then. Indeed, and that is such a big part, in my opinion, of why the movie is successful, and is also a big part of why Brett Easton Ellis does not like the movie. Like, he's talked about it a couple times. Uh, One time he was like, oh, women don't get my books. And then someone brought up American Psycho, and he was like, that's exactly what I mean. She didn't fully get the book. And then later in a different interview, maybe it was with Charlie Rose, maybe it was with Larry King, he said, well, I, I don't think it's bad. I just don't think it should exist. And he thinks that because it's in a visual medium it robs the mystery of the book but honestly I like that it does that because it's ultimately a much more focused and thematically consistent film as a result and also one of the best bits of trivia about this movie Phil Collins when the book came out someone I guess asked him about it because he's mentioned in it and he's like uh, I don't want to read that. I, I don't think we should give that book any credit. And then a couple of years later, he saw the movie and thought it was great. Yeah, coming off of that point, a factor of the visual medium that you're talking about, whether or not you can have a degree of ambiguity, I think it definitely has ambiguity, but what it also has is lots of really long, languorous shots of Christian Bale with his shirt off. 
Oh, yes. And I think that isn't really something you would have gotten with a male director, honestly. There's a lot more emphasis on the male physique, and specifically the male physique in this one, than any of the, like, sex or violence. Yeah, like, this is probably the best Bale has ever looked in his career, and he's gotten ripped many times now. And part of that is because of how lovingly Heron shoots him. And you get that wonderful scene where he does a face peel, and he does that as he narrates how empty inside he is. And this is never something that's explicitly in the novel, and it does so much to put you in the headspace that the novel takes 200 pages to get you in. Yeah, because you don't have to sit through 200 pages of, my couch costs $3,000, and my coffee table costs $2,000, and this is the brand of the TV, this is the brand of the stereo, it has this wattage, it has these specs in it, yada, yada, yada. Instead, you just get one shot of it, and that's all you need. Yeah, it really speaks to the differences in establishing mood between the two different mediums. In literature, it's all about the prose style, what details stick out, what thoughts you hear and what thoughts you don't hear, whose perspective is it, all these questions. And in film, you have a set, you design it from scratch, you work out the lighting and the color timing, and when you take one look at this thing, you instantly get everything you need to feel about it. And Neither is better, neither is worse. They're two different ways of telling stories, and I love that. Yeah, like, obviously I preferred one version of this story greatly to the other. But at the same time, it really shows that what you can do successfully in a book and what you can do successfully in a film are completely different. I think Patrick Bateman represents a literary figure way more than he does a cinematic one. Because, like, of course, a couple years ago, Joker came out, and Mary Harron had this wonderful interview with Vulture where she talks about the comparisons between Joker and American Psycho. But if you look at the lineage of Patrick Bateman, I think it's really down to stuff like Tom Ripley from the Patricia Highsmith books to, like, Alex DeLarge from A Clockwork Orange to Humbert Humbert from Lolita, of course. All these figures who were, like, completely morally bankrupt, but you want to follow them anyway, not only because they're intelligent and well-spoken and it's fun to see them get away with stuff, but because they live in worlds that support them doing their horrible violence and murder. Yeah, like, since I first saw American Psycho, I watched uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is a great movie, and I definitely felt a comparison, like, comparisons between the two were floating through my mind. So much of it ends up being about class, about capitalism, about consumerism. It's inescapable, even in this podcast about gender. I mean, gender and capitalism especially in american society as well as global society in other countries it's inseparable gender is a construct 
As keeps being said. And so is capitalism, but hopefully we can knock both of those down someday. Capitalism is a construct built by a different company, to use a metaphor. We gotta do it in different ways if we really want to get rid of both. I agree with that. And one last thing about the movie before we say our goodbyes. Willem Dafoe, my favorite living actor. He's not in this a lot, but when he is, he's incredible. Something I realized while I was watching the movie is, like, as mentioned, I'm a New York kid. He fits so well into any milieu of New York. Whether it's Spike Lee's Inside Man, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, like John Wick, he is just perfect as a guy from New York who you gotta pay attention to. Just magnetic. Yeah, like, have you seen Tony Scott's The Hunger? Not yet. Well, that is a great queer horror movie. And the thing with The Hunger is that it's one of Defoe's earliest roles. It is a cameo. He is in one shot of the movie looking at Susan Sarandon while she's making a payphone call. And immediately you just look at the guy and think, holy shit, that face. I was just... I couldn't take my eyes off his nasolabial folds in this movie. It's very silly to say, but like everyone in the movie is so young and glamorous and he shows up. We're like two decades away from the last temptation of Christ. And those nasolabial folds just communicate so much about this guy's probity and his competency. It's just glorious. It's airy. That's my impression of him. Glad we were able to end this whole thing where it needed to end, which was talking about America's greatest living actor. I've been a father to you. Now be a son to me. Oh, that was really good. (laughs) Maybe I'll keep it in. We'll see. Enjoy this, folks. Where can people reach you, Mavis? Uh, I write occasionally, though not very often these days for Luton Bus, and I'm on Twitter at I am a something. Also, as of recording, I am now like almost six weeks deep into hormone replacement therapy, so hooray for that. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Bumas, A D A M B U M A S. I too have undergone a journey over the course of making this series. Now I'm writing for Cracked. You can read my work on there. And you can read my work about sexuality on Emily Vanderwerf's newsletter. That's a gr- that's a great piece you wrote over there, by the way. Thank you so much. I wrote about the lobster and my coming out experience and how the two were inexorably linked. Meanwhile, we can't thank Anatomy of a Scream enough for having us on the network. Joe, Valeska, Carolyn, everyone there, thank you so much. All the other shows on the network, we love you. And by you, we mean just Princess Weeks. You can listen to all of their shows at AOAS underscore XX on Twitter and Instagram. We've loved making this show for you, folks. Yeah, it was a bit tough at times because I was, well, a lot was happening for me, like with hormones and whatnot, but we eventually got it all done and... Sorry for my, I guess, at times unprofessional inability to stick to a schedule, Adam, but at the same time, this has been... Mavis, Mavis, 
this is your this is yours. This is yours as much as it is mine. Yeah, but at the same time, this was your idea first, and I'm honored you asked me to join. And I'm honored you said yes. And to everyone else, don't have a medium day. Have a wonderful day. You deserve it. Now we need to return some videotapes. <laughs> Scream Pod Squad.